<laughs> Thanks, William. <laughs> glad you all are here. Welcome again to our church, especially if you're visiting. We're glad you guys are here. Uh, we're in a series right now in the book of Matthew, the uh, first book of the New Testament. And uh, we're going to catch you guys up to speed a little bit here, especially if you're, again, newer to our church or maybe newer to the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, the next three books of the New Testament tell uh, in each of their respective manners, the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry, and especially his death and resurrection. We're kind of in the middle portion still of the book, even in chapter 20 in Matthew. The, the passion, Latin word for suffering, or Latin name for suffering, is still coming. The last week of Jesus' death, which constitutes in Matthew chapters 26, 27, and 28, are um, coming. Uh, but the last week, which in Matthew constitutes chapters 21 all the way to the end, is going to start next week. So, this last week of Christ's death is very significant, and it, it, it embodies his ultimate mission. He came to die. He came to go to Jerusalem. He came to be, to be accused and tried and betrayed, and even though innocent, to, to be flogged and crucified, nailed to a tree. All this is, is prophetically there in the Old Testament. It's pointed ahead to and promised. Christ makes this very clear, and he fulfills it. And so we're not quite there yet, but Jesus is really, he's on the cusp of this, the threshold, in a sense, you could say, geographically and theologically. I want to remind you guys where we are geographically here as well, uh, through a map. I haven't shown this map yet, uh, but thought I would today, because it's a pretty significant moment here geographically in the book of Matthew, where, um, so this is all uh, the, uh, Israel, basically, but in the first century, Rome annexed the land and divided it all into uh, provinces, so you have this Galilean province here, and Nazareth is right here uh, in the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. Jesus spent most of his ministry here with his disciples the past three or four years. This uh, brown line denotes his travel south, which has occurred uh, in our study these past few chapters, When he, uh, and, and ultimately today he's going to cross the Jordan, enter through Jericho, and he's on his way to Jerusalem uh, in the region of Judea. So at the beginning of chapter 19, we're in 20 now, the beginning of chapter 19, it says, and then Jesus uh, essentially went south and entered the region of Judea. Again, right here, entering south. And today, Jericho is going to come up. So Jesus is basically, he's right there. <laughs> and the uh, next couple of weeks, he's going to enter fully into Jerusalem, spend that last week having these final moments of clash uh, with the religious rulers. And so he's already done that. He's spoken in a very progressive manner, theologically, in a sense, though he's very conservative in one sense. He's fulfilling everything the Old Testament said he was coming to do. But in the religious ruler's eyes, the Jewish leader's eyes, very progressive. And so he offended them. They want his head already. But he's going to raise that bar by speaking against the temple, by speaking against what they're doing in the temple, and speaking against more of their customs and so forth, and cursing it, actually, uh, through a fig tree. But we'll come to that later this summer. Ultimately, then, raising that bar to the point where they w would go after him, and Judas, one of his disciples, would betray him, tell him where he is. They come after him and, and arrest him, and then it all goes downhill in one sense there, but uphill, really, in the, in the plan, in the eyes of God, the plan of God, because what he's trying to do all along is go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. So I share the geography behind this, because behind geography, biblically, is always theology. It's not just a passing comment in chapter 19 that Jesus went to Judea. He has to go. He's, he knows he's going to go, because it's there he's going to have that final clash. It's there he's going to ultimately be accused and tried, uh, before the religious rulers and Pilate and Herod, and, and together they're going to send him over to be crucified. The Jewish people rise up. All that has to happen in Jerusalem for other reasons we won't go into today. We will get to that a little bit later this fall when we get to this particular uh, series, this last, chap last few chapters of the book of Matthew. But it's ultimately here that he will be finally and maybe fully, in an intensified manner, 
rejected. So this is significant again because Jesus, notice that as we've been reading here, he's not being dragged here to Judea. He's not going against his will. No one's saying, you've got to go here. He's going willingly. He's in Galilee the whole time. But to, to go south to the region of Judea and ultimately to Jerusalem is to, is to express his loving resolve for sinners like us. And, and the fact that he's obedient to his heavenly Father as the Son of God, obedient to God the Father, who, who gives him this mission, sends him into the world, he willingly wanting to do it. They're partnered up, in a sense, to do this. And so his obedience is, is in focus, but his resolve as well for lost sinners because it's there he's going to die on a cross. And without his death, there's no atonement. There's no, as C.S. Lewis called it, the great exchange. Our sin for the righteousness of God. It's a substitutionary idea. Lots of things happened on the cross, but at its core, substitution occurred. The Lamb of God, the Bible says, who died in a substitutionary manner for the sins of the world. All of that has to occur here in Jerusalem, and it's being intensified here geographically and theologically. So I share that for context and just for informative purposes, but also that just so you know that as you read the Bible, you can be confronted with something that's seemingly peripheral and geographical and peel back the layer and get theology. Even to the point where we would say, we'd see the phrase, and he entered Judea, and we'd equate that with, he's going to the cross, and we'd then equate that with, he loves me. He's obedient to the Father, and he's, he's, he's resolved, he's intentional. And he's doing this, uh, again, to express obedience, but also to express sacrificial love for lost people like us. He's gathering us back to himself. He's fixing the great problem of Scripture, the great problem of history, that we're not where God is. We're banished from him, and we're poisoned in our soul. The cross fixes all of those things. We'll unpack some of that more today uh, with different kinds of language, uh, as we'll see it demonstrated here in Matthew 20, which I'll get to here right now. But contextually, geographically, and especially theologically, think Christ is amazing. Christ is full of love in that he went to Judea willingly, not dragged, willingly, knowing what was full well what was ahead of him, what type of rejection, what type of death he would face, uh, going full, knowing full well, going in a resolved manner to, to express that obedience and love. So, all right. So with that behind us, uh, let's move ahead to Matthew 20. Today's passage is verses 29 to 34, a short, concise healing that takes place right outside the city of Jericho. Uh, two blind men. So read this in full, and we'll come back and uh, talk about this from a couple of angles. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what's expressed here. I pray that as we unpack this, it will be a learnful time for us, but also a very spiritually enriching time. Wherever we are spiritually today, I'm guessing there's a whole gamut of people here today with their Uh, from different backgrounds of knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of Jesus. And so wherever we are, meet us where we are and show us, demonstrate to us in this passage and declare it clearly through words uh, through Matthew 20, 29, 34 and other passages, how loving you are, how merciful and generous and full of healing 
you are. Uh, Point us to your cross. Help us to leave free and encouraged and grateful today. One of the marks of being a Christian, God, your word says, is being thankful because we have something to be thankful for, and we've done nothing to earn it. So I pray for Thanksgiving to be just peaked in our heart today and mind as we leave. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so what I want to do today, uh, everyone, is look at this from a couple of angles. And, and you guys, some of you have been here since the very beginning of this series, which is going back a year and a half now. This will end up being our longest series ever as a church. It'll be a, a full two years almost. Uh, so some of you have seen this already, or you're just, you've read Matthew before, a little bit more uh, well-versed in the scriptures. Others of you aren't. And uh, so what I want to do is review uh, what I'm calling the two pillars of a greater biblical understanding of why healings, physical healings, exist in the Bible at all in such a repetitious manner. So we've talked about these things a lot already in the series, so I want to honor that, uh, but still teach it because it's very important. But honor it in the sense that we won't spend the whole sermon on this, but rather just a few minutes recapping what are these two pillars? What, what's the point? Why do these happen in a recurring manner? What are they meant to teach us and to point us to? Are they ends in themselves or not? And uh, we'll talk about those things here for a few minutes from a two-pillar idea. There's more to say about healings than this, but I think there are two pillars of a biblical theology of healing in the pre-cross portions of these gospel accounts, four gospel accounts in the New Testament. The first is, we talked a lot about this, even last week Jesse mentioned this uh, from one of our elders who preached from Matthew, elsewhere in Matthew 20. The first is to point ahead to and physically embody spiritual healing. Really important to understand this, especially if you're new to the Bible or just remember it, and that the Bible does this all over the place. God, God is a master of speaking in symbols and fulfillments. He just does it all over the place. In fact, to the point where if we don't understand this, the Bible will just be very difficult to understand. It'll be gibberish in some parts or just seemingly contradictory in other parts. And we'll just be at least confused on what is really at the heart of God, what he's really trying to do in the world. It'll, it'll be a confusing matter. But if we understand that he works in physical foreshadowings and signs and types and pictures and symbols that point ahead to and embody realities and uh, the, the goals or the antitypes of those things that come before, then we'll be able to understand a little bit better what's in play here. So symbols and realities. And so physical healings, there's a lot, this plays out in a whole number of ways throughout the scriptures, but physical healings are one piece to that. So they're one of these things. They're, they're a symbol, in other words, or a shadow, not the ultimate substance or reality in itself. So God clearly, biblically, Old and New Testament, is a God of healing. And Jesus says the Son of God, meaning he's equal with God himself, he, he is God in flesh, is demonstrating this with his actions. And elsewhere, by word, it's said, like in the Old Testament, when God says to Israel, I am the Lord, the healer. It's one of his names that he gives to people. So he, it's in word, it's all over the place, and then it's demonstrated here time and time again as well, throughout the Old Testament too, because healings happen there as well, but also here repeatedly through Christ in the New Testament. God is a God of healing. So when he heals physically, he's He's telling us that he's beginning to do, undo the curse of sin and death in the world. He's beginning to push it back. He's beginning to, to fix the great problem, death being this ultimate sting of sin. So when Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, the first human beings rebelled against God and sin and disobeyed, God says, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. But the sin is the act of disobedience and rebellion. What comes from that, though, is, phys- is spiritual death first and ultimately later physical death because they could partake from all of the trees and the tree of life as well in the garden, but they disobeyed God, ultimately not then uh, bringing a curse upon themselves so that they couldn't live forever with him. Banishment ensued, 
and ultimately death. So when, when Jesus heals people then and starts to reverse physical ailments, it's a sign that he's, he's against death. He's coming to undo it. He's coming to, and, and so death itself is in play because he raises people from the dead. So that's in his crosshairs as well a couple of times. But more frequently, he heals people like this, blind people from their blindness and lepers from their leprosy and crippled people from their crippledness and their paralysis. So he's, un, he's beginning to, to give this sense to which God is at work in the world. And he's demonstrating the fact that he's coming to undo the curse. But here's the thing. It goes beyond that, is well beyond that too. It, in, a, in that, it sets the stage, these healings set the stage for the greatest act of spiritual healing the world will ever know. And that's healing from sin. 1 Peter 2.24 gets at this. This is elsewhere in the New Testament. Peter says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body. He absorbed them on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and then live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the, the key there is that last part. Peter is clearly saying, by his wounds, by the fact that Jesus died on a cross, we have healing or the forgiveness of sins. So healing, spiritual healing synonymous with the forgiveness of sins and being no longer banished from God, the great problem. Death's been overdone as well. So if this is true then, this relationship between the physical and the spiritual, the preparatory and the fulfillment, the lesser and the greater, the things that point to the latter things, if this formula is true all throughout the Bible, then we would expect, and we, as we plug in Matthew 20 here, we'd expect to see a lot of post-cross New Testament passages talk about salvation in sight-restoring terms. And it's exactly what we see. There's many places this comes up, but Acts 26:18 is one of them. A lot of the songs we sing uh, are borrowed from that language. They talk about blindness, but not physical blindness. They talk about spiritual blindness, and now we can see as if scales come off our eyes and we can see God for who he is and we can see spiritual realities better and we're just less crippled before him in a spiritual sense. We can see. Acts 26.18 says, a mid-sentence here, but it says, to open their eyes, speaking to about non-Christians, lost people, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So one of the things we should do then is we, is we bring in a whole greater wealth of, of Scripture on these types of themes is think about things like Acts 26, 18 in light of Matthew 20 and vice versa. So when we're seeing Jesus heal blind people, we're thinking, we're the blind people. Weren't there in, on, this, on the streets of Jericho, right outside the gates of Jericho 2,000 years ago, obviously physically, but... As we traject ahead to the cross and beyond, we really are like them as well. We're sitting down, we have nothing, we're begging, we have nothing to our name, and we're blind, and we need help. And we cry out to God for mercy, and he looks at us in pity, and he generously gives healing to us, but it's spiritual healing. It, the, the, our eyes are opened, and as it says here in Acts 26, 18, it equates it to the forgiveness of sins and moving from darkness. When you're blind, you have darkness, Right? To opening eyes and seeing light again. We, we move from death to life, darkness to light, the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And one of the phrases, again, given over to that is blindness, and then subsequently sight, for those who believe. All right, so that's the first pillar, is to point ahead to and embody spiritual healing. 
The second pillar is to express, this has come up a lot in Matthew as well, to express the right kind of posture, or I call it here salvific posture, before a holy God. In other words, what I mean by this is if you look at these two guys who are healed, first of all, they're blind, obviously. They're seated. They're not standing before God, but they're seated before him, simply crying out. This is all they say, but they say it twice. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The son of David is a loaded messianic phrase in the Old Testament. It is going back hundreds and hundreds of years from this vantage point in history to the promise God gave to David and his descendants, that I will bring a kingdom into the world through one of your offspring. Speaking to King David around 1000 BC. And he will have an everlasting kingdom. He will never die. He will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. All of David's offspring could never fulfill that promise, right? They died. It's one of the things it says in Acts when the apostles are preaching at Pentecost. They're saying that promise couldn't have been about David because his grave is down the street. I know where it is. Go look at it. He's dead still. It's speaking ahead of time about Jesus. He's alive. If you go to his tomb, it's open. Nobody. Death is overdone. Sin is gone. It's erased. And our king, who's associated with that kind of victory, is here. And he's here by his spirit now. He's walking among us. He's appearing to people. He's speaking to us, eating. He's going to ascend soon and be seated at the right hand of God and rule over all darkness forever and ever and ever, bringing us his kingdom of light. So, and, bring, and helping us to share in that salvation. So they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They understand a lot, in fact, about the Old Testament and the promise of God and that God is always true to his word. But the simplicity here, I think, is in focus. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Not, Lord, tell us where we need to go to be saved. Tell us what we need to do here to have sight. Tell us what other teacher we need to go consult or what other doctor, what medicine to take or what diet to start, right? He says, none of that. Jesus is the ultimate one who's consulted, right? Lord, you have mercy on us. And this seems really simple, especially for those of us who know the Bible pretty well. We can just skim over that really easy. But this is radical stuff. To say that you're the solution, you don't just know the solution, makes Christianity unique from all other philosophies and worldviews and religions right there. To say that, Jesus to say that, like Aaron read earlier from John 7, that Christ's invitation is come to me and I will give you the fountain of life. Come to me and elsewhere in Matthew 11 and I will give rest for your souls. The invitation is him for him to say elsewhere, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the way back to God, I am the bread, I am the light. All those I am statements that we're primarily find in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, that's radical stuff. He's not going... This is how you get in. This is the type of lifestyle you need to embrace, the type of food you have to eat, the medicine you have to take. He's saying, I am the bridge. I'm the threshold. I'm the door. Enter God's presence through me and what I do for you. Radical stuff. Only God can say that, by the way, too, right? It's just nuts for a person to say that. We'd, we'd call him insane. We just stamp him, right? Insane, wacko, or liar. But for God to say that, it's perfectly appropriate. He's not just a man. He's not pointing to a prophet or to himself as a guru, a wise sage. He's saying, I am the son of God and wrapped up in my character, my nature, being both God and human, I am the bridge between a holy God and a sinful people. And what I'm going to do on the cross is going to enact that bridge. I can touch you. I can talk to you. I can eat with you because that's coming. 
I can do all these things now that are full of grace and full of physical closeness, like touching eyes of blind people who are unclean in an Old Testament perspective. And people should stay away from. He's touching them and they're becoming clean and seen again. All that's possible because of what's just about to happen. He's going to Jerusalem. He's almost there. He's in Jericho. He's climbing the hill. He's going up to Jerusalem to have that final clash and to die on a cross for, for our sins. I'm on a big bunny trail here. Let me go, let me go back to what I was saying. Uh, so to express, to, going back to this posture here, they, they ask Jesus for the cure, right? They, they go right to him. And that's the posture of saved sinners. It's just like this, coming empty-handed as unnamed, unimportant blind people here. Just two, just people who have nothing. They're begging for money, and in this case, begging for sight. They have nothing to their name, coming empty-handed, begging for mercy, not looking for a direction to the solution, but seeing Jesus as the solution. That's the posture we have to have ongoingly as Christians, and for the first time for some of you who are not yet saved. This is what it means to, to come before a holy God, not with hands full of amazing things, not already seen, not full of ourselves, not standing, but seated, in all, in all of that humble, in all of that at the end of ourselves. So this posture comes up, and I encourage you guys to do this if, if you want. It's a great exercise. When you're reading through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the New Testament, note the similarities here, the posture idea that happens a lot throughout the different stories because they're not all identical, but they all share that type of posture. Brokenness. I've got nothing, you have everything. Uh, type mentality <laughs> that Jesus rewards and says, your faith or your trust in me, your empty-handedness before me, your brokenness and humility say, has, has saved you. And so go and uh, sin no more or go and tell people about me or whatever the sending thing is to do. Or today it's going to be follow me. We'll come back to that here a little bit later. So Matthew 20 then effectively shows us in its own, and all healing passages do this when we look at posture, but it effectively shows us in its own unique way that we are saved by God's grace, not by what we do. You can't look at a passage like this and get the posture idea and say the blind people are somewhat impressive. Or, or they've made Jesus turn his head. They, they've cried out loudly and they don't care about other people trying to rebuke them and keep them silent. They've said, Jesus alone is what I need. They've cried out and just said, have mercy, and Jesus has pity, and he offers them himself, ultimately, and the healing he has to give. So, have that as your foundation, especially if that's new to you. Those are these two bigger picture things that we have to read into all of these healing passages in the New Testament. With that said, I want to shift gears and look at the unique elements of this passage as well, because there are some things that happen particularly here and some things that Jesus says you don't see elsewhere. So that's what I really want to focus on today for the rest of our times. Look at three things in particular that are mentioned or that Jesus says, or it says about the people, that you guys, that are unique and that are especially impactful for us and teach us something about salvation and what our response to it should be. All right. So the first thing is this healing happened just outside of Jericho. So in other words, Jericho is mentioned. You don't see this anywhere else. Uh, Luke has a version of this story. Jericho's mentioned, but in terms of Matthew's account, uh, Jericho, the mentioning of Jericho here is unique. Now understand that Jericho is a very significant city 
biblically, uh, from an Old Testament perspective, essentially, it, it signifies primarily two things, conquest and healing. So if people, the Jews of the day, for example, but this could be true for us as well if we know the story back in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, what happened, and also elsewhere in Second Kings when Jer- Jericho is mentioned there with Elijah's ministry, which I'll come to in a second, they would primarily think that. They would think about a story or a place of conquest. They'd think about salvation, and they'd think about uh, healing and purifying from poison as well. So let me explain those two things. In the first case, Jericho was the first city that Israel overtook miraculously with God's help as they, after they escaped from Egypt with God's miraculous help. They were sla- saved from slavery. And as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years, but then as they crossed the Jordan River from the east and reclaimed that promised land that God had given them centuries prior and was re-giving them here now, driving out before them all the unworthy inhabitants who had set up different types of colonies and cities there, Jericho being this first one that they encountered. If you know the story, which I wish I had time to unpack this because it's one of my favorite stories, uh, when Israel just basically walks around the city for seven days, God says, don't lay a finger on the walls. <laughs> don't touch it. Just walk around the city, uh, carry the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence. And on the seventh day, blow trumpets, yell, scream. When they did, the walls just started to crumble and come crashing down. And so there was not, not, I think it says in one of the accounts, or in Joshua's account, I mean, that there was not one stone left on top of another. <laughs> like, systemic annihilation. You know, like, God brought down this city before them, and, and then brought them through Jericho into the... There was more conquest that had to happen, but, but it, for, in Israel's eyes, this was a sign that more conquest was possible, and God was blessing them. He loved them. He was protecting them. He was going before them to drive out people uh, who were their enemies. So the promised land then, basically, the conquest idea was synonymous with salvation, peace, provision, rest, good food, all these things that God says, and I will be with you in that land. It was, it was a, a small drop in the bucket of reversing what happened back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, away from where God was, to, to invite people back into a land where God was present, this would have been a huge light bulb flashing thing for Israel saying, God is at work. He's undoing banishment. He's bringing us back to a place where he is. That's not the ultimate thing either. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. Jesus is the ultimate one who brings us back, but Israel's experiences were that middle ground historical theological event and events that happened for the world to watch and Israel to watch to say, these are physical things that are giving way to the ultimate spiritual reality. But nevertheless, Jericho then was this first city Israel overtook in a, in a conquest-type manner as they entered back into the, the promised land. Then later in history, too, a prophet named Elisha, this is the poisonous water thing, uh, healed poisonous water that was a cause for miscarriage and death in Jericho. So it was a big, significant healing uh, event that occurred as well. Again, to the point where, if, if you know those two stories, Jericho would have, again, sent up these flashing signs of conquest, salvation, peace, rest, love. God is with us. He's bringing us back and healing as well, if you know those two stories. Jericho is basically, theologically speaking, synonymous with that. So then, as we plug those themes then, conquest and healing, into that greater biblical theological formula that I was talking about before, uh, the picture or symbol to fulfillment, it helps us understand even more that Jesus is helping tell a greater story with a smaller story here in Matthew 20. 
Jesus, in other words, is all about conquest. We know this from the rest of the Bible, but even in, what Jesus, in light of what Jesus has already been talking about in doing what the great enemy is, death and sin, what he's going to do on the cross, and not talking in terms as though the Romans are the enemies, which is a paradigm shift for what the Jews were thinking in the day. The true enemy is sin, death, Satan, and our own hard hearts. That's what he came to do. So the shift then, it's a similarity, but the shift is to see that Jesus is all about Jericho-type ministry, but doing it on a much higher level. He's about bringing down walls. He's about pushing out things before his people so that the land is just right for them and God can dwell with them again. But this time it's all in spiritual ways. The enemy is blindness. That's what he came to battle, physically and spiritually. Here physically in Matthew 20, a little bit later from now, spiritually. The enemy, the ultimate Jerichoans, did I pronounce the, well, whatever. The ultimate Jerichoans are sin and death. That's what he came to, to conquest, to conquer. And the fact that it happens outside of Jericho here in Matthew 20 is not a passing geographical peripheral comment. It is significant theologically. And actually, think about it this way too. I think I may have mentioned this, but just in case. Jericho, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, was a, the first city that fell, but it was a sign that more conquest was possible and it was coming. In the same way, this healing of Matthew 20 of the two blind men is like that. It's a sign that more healing is coming. It's a sign that greater healing is coming, that more types of blindness, more types of scales will fall off people's eyes, and that it will be for more than two people. Not like Israel. It wasn't just Jericho. It was all the cities that they eventually conquered with God's hand. The healing here, it's the same thing. It signifies that more healing is coming, which then points us ahead to Elisha's healing of waters, ultimately points us ahead to Christ, and ultimately then to the, his work which was dying on a cross for the sins of the world where true spiritual healing would occur. So that's why it's important to go back and and look at all these things is to get a a bigger biblical view, a a 30,000-foot view, you could say, of these matters and not just the 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 10-foot view or not just the trees but the whole forest, in other words, to use another metaphor on that. But to see the whole whole, uh, big picture here or to think about it this way too with a formula idea, you know, Jericho plus all that Jesus is doing in Matthew 20 equals God bringing us home, spiritually speaking, into the land of his presence. That's how I write this out in a formula uh, with these three components. Jesus and the healing of the two blind men plus it happened in Jericho equals he's bringing us home. He loves us. He's going to heal us on the highest level and take out the poison of our souls like Elisha embodied uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before his ministry, but who pointed to it nonetheless. That's the first thing then, in terms of what's unique. This healing happened outside of Jericho. The second thing is Jesus' statements, which is unique to this healing, uh, one of his statements anyway, when he says, uh, his first response to the two guys is, what do you want me to do for you? This is pulling a little bit uh, from last week, last passage that Jesus, or Jesus, <laughs> Jesse, is Jesse here? I just called him Jesus. I to have to, uh, anyway, um, that Jesse preached on. <laughs> what, what is Jesus' statement here? When you hear someone say, but when you hear Jesus say, what, what do you want me to do for you? This is non-rhetorical. What does that make him out to be? see smiles, but no one's saying it. <laughs> what, is this, what does this sound like? Who says this kind of thing? 
Not a genie. Well, I guess, yeah, sort of. But um, I was thinking of something more explicitly biblical. <laughs> but it's true. I'll say that. <laughs> what is it? Who says this kind of stuff? God says it, right? What type of person, though? Servants. Exactly. Servants say this, right? They go, they go before someone and they say, a servant. And they say, what can I do for you? And they're, they're asking the person they're serving, how can I best help you? And how can I best serve you? Now, think about that statement just for a second. Don't go on. Some of you already went on. Don't go on. I'll bring you back. Think about that. This, this is not, I mean, this is something that's amazing for a person to say to a person, right? This is a humble statement. This is something we'd all be blessed by. We like that around here, for example, when someone, some of you guys have come to us as leaders and said, how can I help out? Like, oh, thank you. We have a list. You know, here we but, um, but when God says this to us, it heightens it, right? It's a whole other level here of, of amazingness. And just it blows your mind to think the creator of the cosmos has become like us. He's humbled himself, condescended us to walk among us in the first place. And, but what he says to us, part of what he says is, how can I help you? What can I do for you? He's a servant. This goes back to last week's passage when Jesus says, the Son of Man, or Jesus, is a servant. He didn't come to be served like the kings of the world, he came to serve and to fight for us. So, in other words, he's like a really good king who is the first boot on the ground in battle. Not the really selfish king who sits back in his quarters in a posh manner and just kicks his feet up and lets everyone die for him. He goes out first and is the first boot in the ground. Or in a servant-oriented manner, he's the one who does the dirty work. He scrubs the toilets. He cleans feet. He serves and always asks his people who are lesser than him how can I serve you? What can I, what can I do for you? Amazing. It's wonderful. And he's the son of God. John 13 is, uh, I thought of this passage too, it's a, it's a different context. It's the Last Supper, John's account of the Last Supper. Um, but I want to mention it because it comes at it from a different angle too. It says in verses 3 to 5, Jesus, knowing that the Father, God, had given all things into his hands, Jesus is God the Son, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper, and just stop there for a second and don't read the rest. <laughs> Put your thumb over that. What do you think he's going to do? You know, Jesus says, knowing that, I've come, knowing that I've come from God, I'm the son of God, and all things have been put into my hands. This is the moment of moments. He rises up from supper and... Well, well yeah. Yes. You know the answer. Well, yeah, it's obvious, right? But I'm just saying, what do you think, right? You wouldn't think that is the, is the idea. You think the last thing he's going to do. It's like it's this triumphant moment of just you know, self-realization and, and this climactic moment of he's in Jerusalem and he's about to go to the cross, but disciples don't know that yet. If you just put your thumb over that, it's a great question, by the way. If, if you're ever reading this with someone who's brand new to the Bible or brand new to the Gospels, brand new to Christ, just put your thumb over that. Just ask him, what do you think would follow that period? <laughs> you know, It's probably like Jesus erases all the Romans immediately, you know, or he just, he heals a hundred thousand people, or he just does something in a, in a power-grabbing, kingly kind of way, which might not be bad, it's just you'd expect something a little bit more, not that. <laughs> what does it say? It says, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Feet in the first century were dirtier than they are today. Uh, people walked in sandals amongst uh, crap, crap, literally, and all kinds of dust and things for days without washing them. 
and people and servants would it's the it's the, the lowest of jobs in a sense they would wash have to wash the feet very very dirty undesirable job but this is the nature of the gospel right here we have to understand we don't understand this we don't understand Jesus this is the nature god serving mankind by dying on a cross for our sins by washing our feet spiritually Matthew 20 says, this is last week, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So don't flip that around. The first thing you should think about when you wake up every morning as a Christian is not, God, what can I do for you today? Not a Christian way of thinking. It doesn't mean that we can't think about ourselves as serving God in some capacity. It's not like it should be a taboo concept or anything. There's ways to talk about that that are true and biblical, but it shouldn't be the center, that like the sun of the universe of your spirituality. The sun is God served you. God washed your feet, and he's much greater than you. He's God, right? But he, and he's greater than me. He's greater than us. He's the greater one who became as low as us and even lower. He condescended himself and washed our feet by dying on a cross for our sins. He served us. God did not create the world for the world to serve him. Also something very unique to Christianity right here that other religions, no other ones actually profess, at least at this level. God was not bored. God was not lonely. God did not create the world because he had certain needs to be met. He's a trinity. So he existed in perfect relationship with himself forever. So we can't say he was lonely. We can't say that he needed something. He was perfectly self-sufficient. So why did he create the world? To share his amazing glory with us. To save us. To, to do basically what's happening here in John 13. To move towards us and to share his glory, which is the fact that he's a servant. That he's generous. That he's willing to go to these types of lengths, and the foot washing is just a hint, not the reality, to go to the length of the cross, to stay committed to his creation, to love us, and to share his glory in that manner with sinful people like us, blind people like us. That's the Christian God. That's the amazing love, the amazingness, the, the thing we could never repay. That's the whole point. You see how silly it is in light of all of that I just said to think, man, there's a lot that I need to do for God today. Or, or there's, there's a lot that I need to repay him for. Or to think that salvation is about what you do, not about who you believe in or what you, what you believe Christ did for you on the cross. There really are not just you know, damning thoughts. They are that too, but another level, maybe entry-level point, they're just silly, logically. If you think about really who God is and really what happened on the cross and really what Jesus did in his ministry, it just screams, I save you, you don't. I wash feet, you don't. I serve you. You don't serve me. In fact, in John 13, 7 to 8, I'll just revisit this quick. You know, Jesus answered him. This is the same passage. Uh, what, Peter and the disciples, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. So he's saying afterward, after I die on the cross for the sins of the world and I'm raised again, you'll understand there more what's going on. I'll give you my spirit. I'll soften your heart to the things that I'm about, and you'll understand more this idea of how it has to be God serving humankind not humankind serving God. And it says, Peter said to him, they don't get it. He doesn't get it, Peter. Uh, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What, what this is saying to us, I think on two levels is, do not think there's something that you can do for him 
on the, on the other level is reception. I mean, what other type of God, what other God says, what can I do for you? What other God says that? I've read a lot of other religions. Some of you haven't, um, but it's a great exercise to read some other holy books, read some teachings on those books. Read, read the, the, the cornerstones, basically, of different thought, thought processes and worldviews and religions. Uh, they are all basically boiled down to climbing the ladder. I heard this uh, coin the other day. I thought it was good. Uh, the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. It's a cross. You guys get what I mean by that? In other words, the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder to climb to God. The symbol is a cross, God bloodied on a tree for you and me. You see, it's, if anything, it's God coming down the ladder and condescending and becoming bloodied for us and dying the worst of deaths. That's, at the, that's the center of Christianity right there. So what other God says these things? The answer is none. What do you want me to do for you? What other God shows, as we see here in Matthew 20, Pity to the point of action. Only our God. Only the God of the Bible. He's that good. He's that loving. He's that salvific. And he's done this for you. He loves you. You are the, I am the blind man. You're the blind man. We're sitting down there. And those who cry out, he hears and he, and he serves and he heals. Do that today. For the millionth time, do that today. For the first time. Do that today, and he will hear you, and not just, not just hear and make it a transaction, but he will have pity on you and love you and be generous and save you, save us from our spiritual blindness. <clears throat> Third thing is, uh, and they followed him. Uh, so we'll end a couple of words on this. I think it's a key closing element here that almost makes us want to see more. I, I almost wish there was more there to say, and what did they do when they followed him, you know? What were the conversations like after this? Or, but it, it points the story ahead. In other words, it is to say within a phrase, it wasn't the end that their eyes were healed. It wasn't the end that they could see again. They were with him and they followed him. So in other words, following Jesus here, just the way this was written, following Jesus was the more important act. Being healed from blindness is amazing, but following Jesus as he's approaching Jerusalem on his way to the cross is especially salvific. It's especially a blessing. It's especially what it means to really be saved. So the healing then, in other words, the healing led to the following. Just like our conversion as Christians leads to a life of being with Jesus. This is what salvation is holistically. It's forgiveness, it's washing, it's deliverance, it's spiritual resurrection, but it's also being with God again. And so it's a great uh, moment for us to... Look at what's happening, what's demonstrated here in Matthew 20 and ask, is this true spiritually for me now? Or in other words, is my spirituality 100% conversion-based, but I, I have no demonstration of, no semblance of following Christ in my life right now? Or I could put it this way. Uh, people who claim to have been saved by Jesus but show no reciprocal love for God or maybe no joy in having a oneness with his spirit, or no interest at all in obeying his command to love others in the spirit of how he first loved us, are, as 1 John says elsewhere in the New Testament, liars. They're not saved. You, you can't say, 1 John says this, I don't have a verse up here, but um, in the book of 1 John, it says, those who claim to be in the light, if you claim to be in Christ, if you claim to be saved, yet pervasively walk in darkness, uh, you're a liar. 
And so, so we can't claim to have been sort of doused with forgiveness, but, but have no transformation or no sense at all of following Christ. And so it's a, great, it's a vague concept in one sense because it can be defined a lot of different ways, but it's a great chance for us just to look at this and say, is this, is this true? And my heavily conversion is, Christ is all about conversion. We have to cross that line in the sand at some point, for sure. The Bible talks about that. But the bigger question in the Bible is not, when were you saved to the churches? When Paul like, writes to a church, the, the bigger challenge he gives them is, where are you today? Almost like he's saying, I don't really care about your conversion. What do you believe today? To Christians, he's saying this. What about right now? Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and are you still believing it? Today. Test yourself, he says, to see if you're still in the faith in 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself. Probe your heart. What do you believe about him, and are you not just receiving the gift of sight, spiritually speaking, flowing from the cross, but are you also with him, like the two blind men? Do you love him? Are you, are you reciprocating that love back to him and to others as an expression of that divine love? Are you loving others? As he says, uh, again, 1 John 3. Are you joyful in the oneness with his spirit? All those are great questions to ask uh, as we do community with the church and as we just go on uh, as Christians with our lives, remembering that conversion is one unto him. It's to be where he is. And it's good news, by the way, too. Jesus is not just throwing out forgiveness randomly like Nerf balls, hoping it's going to hit people in the head and save a few people. He's forgiving people, and then, that's why the Bible uses marriage language so much. Our salvation is depicted as the love a husband has for a wife and the one flesh union that they have together. That's radical. It's wonderful. It's good news that he's not just randomly trying to throw out forgiveness and staying apart from you. The problem is, sin is the barrier, and we need forgiveness, but the ultimate problem is banishment from God. So it's good news that Jesus is not just healing spiritual blindness, he's healing banishment from God. He's taking care of that. He's done that for you. You no longer have to fear banishment from God. You no longer have to think, God's over there, and I'm here. Wherever that, however far that distance is, you, know, you, know, you should never think or say that again for the rest of your life. Right now, we have the, the closest spiritual intimacy that we can have with Christ. Even though we can't see him face to face yet, the Bible says you're already in him. He's already in you. There's no more separation. Sin has been that decisively dealt with. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you thought. I don't care how much you've offended the creator of the universe or other people. It's not... Sin is bigger, or grace is bigger. Sin's big, grace is always bigger, Paul says in Romans 5. When sin increases, the grace of God abounds all the more. It's always bigger, it's always more powerful. Jesus is a sin slayer. He's a death slayer for us. And in that, he's bringing us in through an, a new Jericho into a new promised land to be with him. Receive that. Welcome it. And remember this good news. And, and as I said for service too, I think this is, Yet another example here as we approach the cross, literarily in Matthew, but approach the cross just all the time spiritually as Christians and when we gather. A time to remember that we are forgetful human beings, and this is why it's so frequently written down in the Bible. We forget, we forget, we forget. It's, it's another instance of pounding home the fact that it's all about him and not about us. All about his grace and all about him bringing us back to himself not about us stumbling in the darkness back to himself, hoping to find him. God chases us down. 
God loves us. And he demonstrates that by healing and ultimately dying on a cross in our place. Amazing love, sacrificial love. According to Christ, it's the greatest kind. There's no, other, there's no better kind of love than sacrificial love, and it's that type of love that he embodied for us 2,000 years ago and that we still get to live in and rejoice in and remember. So let me pray. God, thank you for uh, the gospel of Matthew 20. Thank you that it reminds us of uh, so many things as it pertains to what salvation is, uh, but just a few of which are how empty-handed and blind we are, how we have no spiritual money to our name, and how we just need you to walk by us and look at us and have pity on us. And you do praise God that that has happened and is happening. It's true. It's not a story. It's reality. It's history. It's biblical. It's theology. We thank you for that, God, that we can cling to it today. I pray that we would reach out and just grab that life preserver. We are drowning in our sin. We are drowning in hopelessness without you. All we have to look forward to is death and judgment without you. God, we pray that you would remove that rebellion from our heart, remove that banishment from you that we have, and freshly live inside us by your Holy Spirit for the first or thousandth time today. Build your church. May your perfect love for us, as your word says, drive out fear, fear of death, fear of banishment, uh, fear of losing what you've given us. May may, May it drive that out because your love, when it's shining bright enough, like the brightest of all lights, removes all shadow. So God, I pray that you would just scream that into our heart as we respond here today and go our our ways. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.